0: We are back with another episode of Epidemiology Counts addressing the COVID-19 pandemic amid a rising surge of cases in the United States as we head into winter. At this point in the pandemic, there is no need for an extended open-in, introducing the virus and the havoc that it has wreaked upon the world, but the numbers are truly staggering and worth rehashing. There have been 44 million cases globally with close to 9 million of them in the United States and the virus has been responsible for the deaths of 230,000. Unfortunately, the case count is growing in most parts of the US. As of today's recording, we hit 100,000 new cases in one day for the first time ever. We are all living with the presence of this virus in our communities and frequent scares amongst our families, friends, schools, and places of work is unfortunately all too common for most of us. Because of that, we decided to focus this episode on and it's many of us are having more and more experience with, but still have so many questions about testing. I'm sure that many of you listening have been tested for the coronavirus, as I have, or have at least considered it due to a possible exposure or to know your status before you take a trip. But how do you know when to get tested, which test to get, and how to interpret the results? There has been so much talk of false negatives and false positives and the correct timing of testing in the news that even the most savvy of us can find it very confusing. And with the holidays approaching, some of us wanna know if we can be tested to travel to see families safely. We're hoping this conversation with experts on this topic will help provide some guidance on testing and other tricky questions regarding living and functioning during this pandemic. I'm your host, Brian James associate professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research, straight from researchers who are involved with this work. We are joined for the sixth time by our infectious disease epidemiology experts, Justin Lessler from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Michael Mina from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you guys for joining us again. All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining me. It has been a couple of months since our last chat, and I think we all had a bit of pandemic fatigue and maybe a bit of a break was good for everyone. But now I think it's a good time to provide some practical info to our listenership about COVID testing. All right. So let's start out with some basics. So, Michael, can you give us a basic, real basic lay of the land regarding the kinds of testing available?
1: Sure. Well, the... The majority of the tests that have been performed so far globally and, and in the United States have been uh, PCR tests. This is mm-hmm. kind of the this is the test that was uh, developed first, and it really hasn't changed much since it was first um, developed. Uh, there's been a few versions of them uh, for COVID, and uh, there's WHO version and the CDC, and then there's a lot of a lot of uh, uh, slightly different uh, PCR tests. These mm-hmm. are generally clinical diagnostic tools. In fact, in the U.S., the only pathway that we have to get authorization for any test is as a clinical medical diagnostic. So more or less, all of them are, uh, at least on paper, clinical diagnostic tests. There's, um, aside from the PCR, there are, the, the other big class that we're seeing are these are rapid antigen tests. Uh, and those are tests, uh, the, the first ones to come out were the BD-Veritor and, and the SOFIA, the Quidel assay uh, so called the SOFIA test. And those are two uh, rapid sort of paper strip tests, and they use an instrument to read the, the piece of paper, and it's a lot like a pregnancy test. And now what we're seeing uh, in, the, in, in the interim there was also there's also a number of point of care devices. And these are the, the most famous one being the Abbott ID now. This is the one that was used at the White House um, from like March all the way through, uh, through September, October so. And, um, and that's actually a, it's a different kind of molecular test that is kind of like PCR, but it's not quite the same. It is called isothermal amplification and it just keeps the, the reaction at a given temperature and at that temperature, the enzymes work to replicate RNA uh, into, into DNA and then, and then replicate DNA. Um, and so what we're seeing now though is a big shift uh, to what, what I call, a, a lot of times I'll call them like paper strip tests or rapid antigen tests that detect uh, pieces of, uh, of protein from the virus and the the important shift that's happening now was the first one that came out was the Abbott Binex now, and that is a uh, it's essentially something that you don't need any sort of reader or instrument for. It's just it's essentially just a piece of cardboard with one of these paper strips on it, much like a pregnancy test. And uh, and you you swab your nose, you stick the swab onto the to the um, test, and you you put a few drops of buffer onto it, and it will uh what we call lateral there will be a lateral flow and that will cause a line to form if you're positive
0: wow so it's a real that's why it's called a rapid test because you really get results immediately huh yeah you end Amazing. up seeing um
1: the the, the results you end up ahead. seeing in in somewhere around like two to two to 15 minutes or so you'll start to uh, you'll start to see mm. them uh uh really the, the line will form form pretty quickly if you're positive yeah uh, so and
2: just to jump like in here test. Just to jump in, Brian, Brian like all, all sure. of the things Michael's talking about, the, these are all tests for active infection. So there is this other class, of, it, right. there's a other class of tests, serology tests mm-hmm. or serologic tests or blood tests. Mm-hmm. And those are going to be tests for past infection and are really telling you a completely different mm-hmm. type of information. Um, and it's important not to confuse the two.
0: Whether you have antibodies, right? Right. So whether, whether you ha- have you've had a previous so, immune reaction to this, right?
2: Whether you have evidence of having been infected in the past, right? Okay. And Thank it, you. And
1: that's you know it's it's really important because the, the, the in an astounding move, the FDA actually approved an antibody test or multiple of them now as hmm. diagnostic tests for infection, which wow. doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and it just nope. it just goes to show just how confused <laughs> people have been that I mean, an antibody test should almost be. By definition, a test of past infection, right. and so. Um, it, but you know, they they got it confused, and unfortunately, um, there's even been I've I've heard recently that um, some travel, uh, potentially some travel to China is actually requiring, uh, antibody based testing, which I just can't understand. That doesn't you know, make it's Very sense. unclear. <laughs> uh, yeah. So.
0: Okay. Well, that's really interesting. We'll table that, <laughs> but but you know according to our experts here, um, antibody tests are going to tell you if you have, it, you had it in the past. So let, let's stick to the, the, um, test of whether you have an active infection. So PCR versus rapid, cause I, you know, I get a lot of, I didn't actually know about the third type of test, the, the point of care test. That was interesting, but let, let's just stick to PCR versus the rapid antigen test. Um, cause that's where I personally get a lot of questions from people that I don't know have it for. That's why I said, I'll I'll ask this on the podcast. Um, You know, there's clearly got to be some slight differences, or I don't know if they're slight, um, in terms of the validity of these tests, or in terms of, you know, whether you believe the results. Um, So, you know, this has happened in in my life with people I know. So if you get a positive test on one versus the other, you know, which one do you believe? So let's go with Let's say you got you tested negative on the rapid test, right? But then a day or so later, if you're lucky, or, you know, it could be six days later, you get um, a positive test on the PCR. You know, which one do you believe and why?
1: Um, well, I would say if you have discordant results, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's two ways that you can have tests be discordant. And uh, if the PCR is positive, for the most part, you can be pretty darn sure that, the, that, that, that you actually are positive. But mm-hmm. if the PCR is positive and an antigen test, a rapid antigen test is negative,
3: mm-hmm.
1: for the most part, that actually starts to indicate that you probably are actually further along in your course of infection and your mm-hmm. body is actually, has potentially already cleared the virus from the body. And we see that that clearance happens usually between six and 10 days after somebody would first theoretically kind of turn PCR positive and mm-hmm. have symptoms, ten, by 10 days later, the virus, the, the immune system will have cleared the virus. So the rapid antigen test, which actually looks for the proteins of the virus, will be negative. Gotcha. But the RNA of the virus will still persist, very much like DNA left at a crime scene. Mm -hmm. RNA, like the crime scene in this case is the infection in the nasopharynx and the nasal swab, where where the nasal swab goes, it leaves all of its RNA behind. So the Mm -hmm. PCR can keep being positive for much longer. And so you get this discordance between the two.
0: Right. And so, (laughs) and, and something that you've been a proponent of is that, is the fact that you're probably not infectious at that point, right? So, the, in in some way, if you're if you're wondering whether you had an active infection, the PCR will tell you that answer, maybe more validly than the than the antigen test. But if you're worried about whether you are actively infectious, the antigen result might be the one that you want to pay attention to. Is that is that a correct statement?
1: That's that's generally a correct statement, absolutely. And um, mm-hmm. there there are, of course, and Justin has has. Um, shown some of this data that you know there is a whole nother, a whole different reason why you might be discordant. And that could be, let's say you have a good swab, mm-hmm. a good nasopharyngeal swab, for example, on PCR, mm-hmm. and then you mm-hmm. go in and you get a poor swab when you go and do the antigen test mm-hmm. after that. That could show negative just because it was a bad swab, for example. And is the so, antigen
0: swab more um, sensitive to a bad swab? Like is it more uh, um, dependent on how good the quality of the swab is?
2: it'll well, be a little more independent because it, there's mm-hmm. no replication in the pcr pcr as you know but our listeners may not mm-hmm. pcr is a step in the process where you amplify the, the genetic material of the virus that's in the specimen and you take it and you build it up and you build it up and you build it up and they're looking mm-hmm. at that process to decide if it's positive so just because mm-hmm. you do that process the pcr has the capability of being more sensitive than mm-hmm. a test that is reliant only on the material it gets out. Gotcha. But I, gotcha. I think your question gets to what I think is the most important thing to think about whenever you start to talk about this is, right, the test is only relevant in terms of what you plan to do with it.
0: <laughs> right.
2: So like saying you know which one is right like you know i mean like as michael said well the pcr test was probably right in terms of
0: you were infected
2: (laughs) you were infected at some point and probably fairly recently like Mm -hmm. not you know not two months ago Mm -hmm. and the antigen test was probably right that or if everything was going well probably right that you were not infectious at that moment when you got that test and there's a lot bigger window for that to be true at the end than the beginning so so it's it's more likely at the end uh but if but if okay but if what we're doing is saying okay do i need to you know should my friend who has the sniffles assume that he might be infected because he was exposed and acts like he's been exposed well yeah, probably mm-hmm. he should. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. is it am I likely infectious right this very second? You know, I'd say given the scenario, the odds are no. I, I mm-hmm. tend to err on the conservative side when it comes to isolation, but you know, <laughs> like if you you know it it has but everything's weighing of risks.
0: I got gotcha. you. Yeah, no, we're circling around so many, so many questions that I'm trying to get at. I'm trying to figure out which one to ask you first. But, um, well, let's start with this though, because uh, you know I think the timing question is important. Um, you know, Michael, you were saying that you know if there's discordance, it's probably because you used to be, you know, it, you were infected, but now you've cleared it. But what if it's at the beginning? So, Justin, you were getting into this. And, and I know Justin, you have a lot of work about that that beginning period. So, like right after infection, say in the first three days, could it be that you're discordant um, between your rapid test and your PCR test? Because, uh, and I'm just I, I don't know the answer to this, so I'm asking: like, could the PCR test be more sensitive in the first couple of days than the than the rapid antigen test is?
2: I mean, I would expect there to be a
1: window where it was. I'll, I'll leave it to Michael mm-hmm. to he probably has data <laughs> oh, okay um, yeah so this is this is a lot of people's first question and, and mm-hmm. first criticism and saying you know if it, if it can be discordant at the end it could be discordant at the beginning because sensitivity mm-hmm. you know you have to go up and then come back down
3: mm-hmm. the
1: real differences and this is at the crux of a lot of the work that we've done and why I think that rapid test could serve to really be a game changer at this with transmission blocking but is that at the beginning, if you were to have sort of a constant, like let's say theoretically, you had a constantly monitoring PCR test on somebody mm-hmm. after they get infected. From the time that they were to theoretically first turn positive on a PCR, mm-hmm. the, at that point, the virus is sort of screaming upwards. It's replicating mm-hmm. exponentially. And this is a virus that within a day, maybe two days, it will go from, uh, from just the limit of detection of PCR to a billion viral copies. Wow. Uh, per per mil, and so, mm-hmm. um, and so, what we see is that people shoot up very, very quickly. So that actual window of time between the sense that when when PCR first turns positive and when an antigen test would turn positive, is short. It's like eight oh. to fifteen hours or so. So it's a really oh, so the chances that you even get tested in that window, are really slim versus the difference on the back yeah. end, which could be like. Days, you know, the, it could be weeks, weeks um, that you're yeah. that you PCR positive but antigen negative on the back end. So you know oh. we're talking about a ratio. Just probabilistically, if you find that discordance, it's almost always going to be on the back end, and very very rarely, yeah. if you can find somebody on the front end, great. But the only way you're re- really going to do that is if you're testing people really frequently.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I got you. And All
2: you the, use, yeah. Right. I mean, I think a more likely right. I mean, a more likely thing is to happen is that you test negative on both, but are but are infectious mm-hmm. by the end of the day. Right. Like you were <laughs> well you, let's you, talk about that. Right. Like you, you were infected and didn't have detectable viral loads on either. And then you were right, you know, and because because as Michael says, like when you go up, you go up fast. I mean, mm-hmm. and this isn't like special to right. this virus. This is pretty the standard
0: for I'm respiratory concerned. viruses. Yeah. I see. Yeah, it's um, okay. So let's st- so uh, go
1: ahead. Uh, no, no, I was just uh, no, go ahead, Michael. Uh, to that point, I think that it's it's really interesting that um, I don't want to harp on this too much, but you know, going into this epidemic, people really it's as though people thought that we knew nothing about this virus and we had to like <laughs> rewrite the textbook. Mm-hmm. But you know, just based on first principles alone of like understanding viral replication, exponential growth, knowing a little bit about this virus. You can infer a whole lot and so Mm -hmm. you know we knew that this was going to shoot up before there was any real data now there is real data it actually comes from the nba bubble um because they were testing people really frequently and you can see within a day they go through many orders of magnitude they'll go from like the limit of detection of pcr all the way up you know within a Mm. 24-hour period of time so it this was expected and and it's uh and it's really an amazingly fast replication once the virus gets situated in the incubation period sort of complete. Then the virus is just replicating, you know, one cell infects 10 cells and 10 cells infect 100 cells and boom, you're, you're at, you know, trillions pretty quickly.
0: I see. So the, okay, well, the, the, um, all right. So let's, let's put aside the comparison of the PCR and antigen though, and talk about this, this beginning time, because I think it's really important. Um, and let's just talk about PCR. So you're saying that this happens very, very suddenly that all of a sudden you go from you know, a few, a few, uh, a few viruses, uh, um, you know, whatever, whatever unit of viruses, Vir- viral
1: particles,
0: <laughs> viral particles. particles, to millions very quickly, right? But that being said, the incubation period until you hit that time is, I believe, Justin, from your work, about three to five days, right? So you, so you can be... T- it depends, okay. Um, but I think from what I've understood from some of your work, Justin, is that you can be tested too early, right? So if you yeah, if
2: you get tested in day exposed. one or two after exposure, right. it's really unlikely that you are going to test positive. Uh, and you're right. And so you know, it's a few days out. And actually, one of the things uh, that I think we don't know—Michael may disagree about whether or not we know— this, but I think one of the things we don't know. Is how exactly, um, how exactly expose the ton- uh, the replication when you shoot up in that is mm-hmm. relating to symptoms mm. when you do develop symptoms. I see. Because uh, this is important for the question, and not to get too technical, this is important for the question of should I be able to test out of quarantine, right? right? Which is what everybody wants to know. Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah, we're, we're and definitely if it's
2: the it. case that they're really tied, like mm-hmm. you know, I simmer, and then I shoot up in virus, and I shoot up in symptoms, and that time period from when I shoot up in virus and when I shoot up in symptoms mm-hmm. is always a has sort of a, always about around the same distance from each other. If you do the math, it's really hard to find a justification for testing out of quarantine. You mm-hmm. get very little benefit from the testing. But if you if it's the case on the other extreme, if it were the case that when you shot up with virus is completely independent of when you you shot up with symptoms, when you got your symptoms, Mm -hmm. uh, then like testing out of quarantine would become a reasonable thing to do. It'd be like you have two independent like indicators.
0: Uh, So or if there's a lag, I mean, does it have to be independent or is that? It, right. Well, the, so the truth true. is probably something in between. They're, they're,
2: they're, mm-hmm. they're correlated processes, right? They, they have mm-hmm. to do with each other. But I don't think, you know, even, you know, I, talk, I talked to uh, the authors of the MBA study and, and like, it's not clear that their data helps here. Like uh, that the, uh, you know, that how much those two, move together. Like it's probably somewhere in between, like them being completely independent and them completely moving together. But mm-hmm. how much they move together really indicates how much we can test out of quarantine. Because so the idea is if I shoot up with virus now, uh, if I'm going to shoot up on virus three days after I got infected, whether or not I develop symptoms on the day four or on day 10, you know, the test is all that matters right and you know and it's and in a way it's like far far superior to something you know, i mean well it's definitely yeah. far far superior It's right <laughs> whereas if i always shoot up in virus two days before i develop symptoms to take an extreme example the most i can ever buy with my test it's is two, two days. days
1: gotcha in, okay unless you don't unless you don't become symptomatic though
2: unless you don't become symptomatic the test right,
1: right. i i think there is an added value for tests.
2: Like I recommend when people say, can I test about quarantine? I say quarantine anyway, but if you're doing anything where you're like, if you're visiting an older relative, if you're going to a job where you're at high risk of exposing people are doing, you're doing anything like that, you know, do your quarantine, you know, do your 10 days, 14 days of quarantine, take a test at the end or toward mm-hmm. the end.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Because, you know, like you need, you want to be extra sure. But the idea that, you know, I mean, it was so disappointing when I ran these numbers. Like, I can't, I can't express how disappointed I was. Like, you know, like the idea that, oh, because I thought, okay, you know, maybe it's like there's an optimal day, day six, that if I take a test on day six and then, you know, and I haven't had symptoms at day six, I'm, you know, that's equivalent to me waiting for day eleven, you know, to day twelve or whatever.
0: But there hasn't. But
2: it it doesn't. It doesn't seem to work out that way, based on the evidence that, that I've seen. Maybe Michael has access to some stuff that I haven't seen that might change my mind. But that's that's what I've seen.
0: Wants to be the answer to what a lot of people ask me, which is why the heck do I need to stay quarantined for 14 days if I tested negative? Well, there's your answer. Because we don't actually know, even if you're not showing symptoms, that you've actually cleared the virus, based on on just the test so
1: yeah. can i ask a, I, I am i'm pretty confused about the conversation we just had were we talking about icing or quarantine there quarantine. um so wait i'm i'm i guess i'm confused i'm trying to better understand how the if we were to follow a whole bunch of people in quarantine for example mm-hmm. and we see that you know, ninety percent of them never become infectious or infected. Right. Ninety percent of them never turn positive ever. We're testing right. them during quarantine, and we see that almost all of them who do turn positive do so uh, in the first seven days. Then doesn't doesn't that suggest that testing that there 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 is at least if you're not doing really high risk activities that there could be a role for testing at day seven to uh, leave quarantine, given that you're really willing to completely adhere to all other public health mm. strategies and maybe test on day you know eight eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen 11 12 13 14 as well with a rapid test or something
2: oh I'm, I'm not saying I'm not saying there aren't strategies that could involve testing that that, oh, oh, that wouldn't it. be okay. better right that wouldn't be good in a lot you're just but saying if you when, have like one if you're yeah. trying to get I'm saying if you' if your goal is if if the the question is and this is sort of the way in the public health world it's been asked to me right is the question is okay, we have a 14-day quarantine. We want to know when we when can we have no symptoms plus a negative test, mm-hmm. and have the same confidence of somebody not being infectious mm-hmm. as a 14-day qu- quarantine. Ignoring the people who never develop symptoms for a second, right? Like, uh, then it doesn't give you as much as you think it's going to. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, you know, yeah, but that's not to say, I think, right, like, to the broader issue, right, like, you know, testing is a tool, we need more tools, and we need to be more creative how we use the tools. So I'm not saying there aren't creative solutions, or staged, like, I I don't know why there's not more conversation about what I'd say that Michael just described, I'd take that to be as as a staged release strategy right yeah you know those first five to seven days no symptoms a negative test you're at, you know you, you've gotten right. 70 80 percent of the people out of what the right. way at that point mm-hmm. and that 20 percent is important but you know you but you can maybe take a active what's called an active monitoring approach there you know they're adhering mm-hmm. to normal or maybe slightly elevated guidelines and their, um, you know, slightly elevated guidelines, and they're going to do a test, say at ten or twelve or fourteen days as well, right? Just to be okay. extra safe.
0: So you're all are getting to something that I wanted to ask about, which is, you know, a lot of times when we talk about testing, we talk about one test, right? Um, and then you have the opposite extreme, like the bubble where they're just getting tested daily. Most of us don't have those kind of resources or access to that. But is there a way to use two tests, you know, just like, you know, is there some kind of um, strategy that would be best to, to get tested twice where you would much more, um, you'd be much more certain of the two negative results that you received than the first one. So I'm thinking of, an, uh, I'll just give you an example. Like what if you, um, you know, you had a known exposure and you waited, I think you're suggesting, Justin, and the, what is to wait how many days do you think from a known exposure? When would you get tested?
2: Minimum. I mean, it depends uh, on or just again, what's why. optimal,
0: optimal. Well, you want to know if you right. or if you're infected. Are you so you don't I have mean, any symptoms.
2: Right. I think you're probably four or five days out is your okay, best four time. Five days you, is your most likely time to test positive. Right. If you've been okay. exposed posed, maybe six, you know, that window, but if you oh, so don't have, have, you know, but that's not a clean, that's not, a, that's not a stamp. That's not the stamp, you know, whatever, uh, inspe- that you're clean. Uh, you guys are probably too young to remember <laughs> inspector 12 approved. Uh, like on the Haynes commercials,
0: uh, but yeah, that's not Inspector like Twelve in <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I got you. Um, I, right, you, that one test is not Inspector Gadget improved or whatever you're saying. Um, but what I'm asking, two years <laughs> but what I'm asking is if you then if you get a negative result that fourth or fifth day, mm-hmm. and then you get another test, say five days after that. I don't know. Three days after that, how much more? I mean, I give me percentages here, but like you know, how much more confident are you that those two negative results are real as opposed to a false negative?
1: Yeah. So I'll, I'll answer that in a slightly. Di- so essentially, if you're in quarantine, so somebody's in quarantine, you're worried mm-hmm. that you're positive and you don't want to like infect your family.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So you take a test at day six. That gives you pretty good confidence. That means probably like. 75 percent uh if you are positive you would have like ha- had turned positive already 75 percent of the time let's okay. say okay mm-hmm. okay so now you know but but for the first part we're starting at a baseline of like most people who go to quarantine never turn positive so right so all of a sudden you're at a, you're already starting at like a fairly low high for mm-hmm. the overall population but low mm-hmm. over up, you know low in general so then mm-hmm. if you can get to day six maybe mm-hmm. you're you're, 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 you're already most likely to have passed that window. So then if you get to like day, then there's kind of an exponential decay, I would say, uh-huh. in terms of the number of people who would turn positive from there on out. to so like day 14, mm-hmm. when you can leave quarantine. So I would say that it really drops off pretty quick. Like you're not gonna mm-hmm. see a nice uniform distribution from day zero to 14. You're gonna mm-hmm. probably see a lot of people turn positive in the first like seven days who are going mm-hmm. to turn positive. Right. and then a slightly larger smaller number and smaller number and smaller number yeah. the number of people who truly turn positive on like day 12 13 14 in quarantine mm-hmm. probably gets really small like 1 or 2% of gotcha. all the people who turn positive in quarantine so i mean that's
3: yeah
1: i mean that's
2: what our modeling suggests but that's what yeah. the symptoms given that you are going to develop symptoms that that's mm-hmm. about like testing our results suggest you know testing like gives you a day or two on the symptom indicator if you were to develop symptoms testing has the advantage that you can test positive if you were going to be one of those rare people you know i mean not you know that rare but rare enough people who will be positive and never develop symptoms Mm -hmm. like testing clearly has that advantage
0: right but which isn't that rare as we know right
2: Right. It's not right. It's what's rare. It's 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 uncommon. It's it's not the average, but it Mm -hmm. and yeah.
0: Okay, so this is useful. So but but you know, we've been talking about if you had a known exposure in your quarantine, all right. But let's let's kind of I think a lot of people listening to this are probably wondering how to use testing as a strategy for, you know, the holidays are around the corner and You know, even though Dr. Fauci says stay at home, you know, don't see your family. I know a lot of people are still, you know, planning to see their family and they want to do it safely. And um, so, is there a strategy you could use if you say, All right, look, we're two weeks out from Thanksgiving? (laughs) You know, I, I want to know for certain. I'm just, it's just my household going to one other household. I want to make sure that both households are coronavirus free no one has any symptoms no one has a known exposure is there is there a way to use testing to to a point where you can say i'm fairly certain this is going to be a safe thing to do
1: well i would say that uh, what you're airing on is this idea that i've been calling entrance screening um mm-hmm. and it's sort of it's really what the the white house did um and continues to do you know and 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 that's too. and a lot of places are doing it. Airlines are starting to see it. Like, can you actually, can you make testing sure enough that you've cut risk so much that it actually becomes like fairly safe to gather? But I would say, you know, for families who are really interested in getting together for Thanksgiving, for example, Mm -hmm. the best thing to do is to really try very hard to uh, quarantine yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, or isolate, you know, just stay away from the rest of the world for a Mm -hmm. couple of weeks. If you're going to travel and you know that you're going to go see grandma and grandpa Mm -hmm. um you know testing can only get you so far because you you for most people it's a one-shot deal you you Mm -hmm. know you're not going to see a lot of people at least where we are today we don't have an abundance of rapid tests available to everyone today Mm -hmm. to use at home so for most people it's gonna be a one-shot deal that's a bad bet if you're just betting on one test you know and if you're going to do it i would say the best thing to do is try to find like a Walgreens that has an Abbott ID Now instrument, mm-hmm. you know, which is a real molecular test, RNA test mm-hmm. that gives you a result in 15 minutes, mm-hmm. and try to use that the day, like Thanksgiving morning. You know, that's oh, what like I would day say.
0: day of. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's, Interesting. That's
1: the that's the best time if you're wanting to make sure you're not going to be infectious that day. Mm-hmm. The best time mm-hmm. to do it is that day is if that you day. can get the result, or at least as close to that day as possible. Yeah, and get um, the whole
2: family to do it, and the whole family exactly, <laughs> exactly. And get everyone to do it. Right. I yeah. mean, this so, gets the the, to, to the point I keep making that about like testing being a tool and it's a question of what we want to do about it. Like, mm-hmm. right? like do with it. Like if, you know, we're talking about like our goal is to, you know, in a country where the virus is raging everywhere, our goal is to use testing, you know, and quarantine to bring down the transmission rate a bit. know Mm -hmm. moderately in a way that is like minimally burdened you know or or only moderately burdensome Mm
3: -hmm.
2: you know five days five days quarantine plus a test seven days quarantine plus a test makes complete sense
3: Mm -hmm. if
2: i'm like you know to to take the the example michael was talking about if i'm going to visit my 75 year old grandmother
3: Mm
2: -hmm. for thanksgiving dinner and there's going to be a bunch of us a young grandma justin (laughs) <laughs> All right. Well, my grandmother's t- my mother is 75. <laughs> my mother's, uh, yeah, was gonna say. My mother's <laughs> older than that. My little right. If I'm visiting my 77 year old mother, just to get really specific. Okay. There you right, go. Right. Like I would, you know, I would do full 14 days or at least 10, at the very minimum 10 and, mm-hmm. and get it and try to get a test like morning of or as close to, as Michael said, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is is the downside risk for me of if something happened Mm -hmm. is just not worth it particularly if viruses all around likewise if i'm new zealand Mm -hmm. or you know where i've essentially kept the virus you know out or knocked the virus down to zero within my country
3: right
2: you know or it's the early days before the virus got here you know 14 days plus testing makes complete sense it may not even be stringent enough because
3: Mm.
2: right now your whole population is going to be is able to act like the virus isn't even around isn't even there and getting even one breakthrough destroys that confidence (laughs) right so there you know it makes complete sense to be hugely stringent you know but that same strategy like you know if we did that in the United States right now with how much virus there is out there, how long would it take it for every single one of us to be sitting at home in quarantine, waiting for our, you know, 21 days plus a negative test or whatever, right. Or 14 days plus a negative test. Like, so it's absolutely, uh, what am I, what's my situation? What am I trying to accomplish and what's the risk I'm willing to take?
0: Yeah, that's like I mean, that's a good point. There's obviously different strategies for like you know population level risk reduction versus what I'm trying to ask you about in this podcast, which is my personal risk reduction given the context of rampant pandemic around the country, unfortunately. Um, but no, I think that that's really useful information for people who are who are planning to travel. Um, one one question I did not want to forget because. I think it's very important. Is I know that um, some testing places you, we keep talking about the nasal swab, but I know you can get an oral swab um, for uh, you can get an oral swab. So is that any less valid or reliable than the um, than the nasal swab?
1: Well, so so that that's um, there. There's oral swabs, and then there's also saliva, and oh. so there's there's two different things, and so not many are actually doing a true oral swab, although I was. There is one company who's trying to um, trying to create a test that actually is a tongue swab because the virus mm-hmm. can technically grow on your tongue cells, <laughs> and uh, and then they use a chromogenic solution to to see if it's positive or negative.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's actually an interesting company. It was uh, it, they're using Polaroids technology that comes from the <laughs> so it can be done at room temperature. It's really nice. Um, but the the saliva has been a pretty you shake it, it,
3: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so the um so the saliva uh, there's been a number of different studies kind of showing some show that it's better than a nasal swab but maybe not as good as a nasopharyngeal swab some show that it's inferior it's i would say the data is like not super clear at this point um Mm -hmm. there was a, a nice paper in the new England journal um that suggested anyway that it was as good but you know there's a lot of discordance there actually and The reason that I um, I think that saliva can be useful, it's going to be maybe less useful though for some of these rapid paper strip tests because there's more factors in your saliva that might end up throwing off false positives and true. um, Oh, that's interesting. So, so we have to you know the tests have to be made specific to sort of whether you're using saliva or not versus just taking a swab and putting it in the buffer for the test and pouring Mm -hmm. a few drops of that onto the paper strip is a different different thing. so sure. we're starting to see saliva, but it's. I think that it's really got a nice place. Saliva is a very good home in PCR testing, like for a right. surveillance type of PCR testing.
0: Okay, yeah, because I mean I can tell you as someone with a four year old who's had to get tested, it would if we have to get tested again, that saliva test will be a lot more um, of a pleasant experience than doing another nasal swab. You well, know, that well, was, when uh... you
1: when you said when you got tested though so there's actually Mm -hmm. two types of nasal swabs yeah
0: this is an important point nasal and and nasopharyngeal yes
1: yeah so your kid probably got nasal swabbed nasopharyngeal Mm -hmm. swab
0: nasopharyngeal where they go deep
1: that's the deep one the nasal swab actually i have a bunch of them like i actually went and visited family and every morning Uh, i took a rapid test they're not available to the public yet but you know and and um and those actually aren't bad. Like they almost just feel like picking your nose. You know, you just like rub it, you know, you swirl it like, around. It's just
0: it's in your, your nose, nose as opposed to the back. Right. Now, exactly. if, but a four, if you come towards a four-year-old with that, they're not going to believe they're not. you're not going back up there again, though. So right. well, <laughs> okay. after you've you done know. the
1: first one, right. right. So exactly. I have a question,
2: Michael. So, you know, for flu, there's been, there were a lot of studies that showed the nasal plus a throat, nasal, fr- nasal plus throat like actually outperformed NP and even NP aspirates. Is that nasal fringe aspirate? I'm sorry, I got technical there <laughs> and for the no podcast. Worries. But uh, nasal is is that um, has anybody been trying that that yeah. you knew of for this?
1: Uh, so oddly, no. But I I do it on myself. <laughs> if I'm using a rapid test, <laughs> like why not go to the go as far back you know within reason uh mm-hmm. get your throat and do a nasal swab like i'm not going to give myself a nasopharyngeal
3: mm-hmm. but
1: you could definitely do a throat and because the virus grows there too you know there's no mm-hmm. reason not to do both really and so um, but i haven't seen anyone pushing uh pushing that justin for um you know and i'm yeah. not sure why because i bet it would yeah. be better you know
3: okay general.
2: yeah i mean it is weird it, there is uh, not to get to t- Shop talk, but I think this is understandable. Like, there's this weird bias in favor of nasal pharyngeal swabs, Mm -hmm. I think, in the medical community. Maybe just because it seems dramatic and like it should work better, right? Uh, when you know, for flu, at least the um, uh, you know, for flu, at least the nose plus the throat seems to work just as well.
0: Okay, from what I understand, if you do cuz like the Chicago City testing does saliva. I erroneously said oral earlier, but I meant saliva. Um, but you're saying that there's not a lot of evidence that it's any less, you know, valid of a result from the saliva. Is that correct?
1: Wow. Yeah, it's um, the the difference is um, that we the difference is <laughs> with saliva it's generally getting a PCR test. It really I would say that all of these have to be taken. You know, they're all generally performing pretty well, if you're doing PCR with saliva or with the nasopharyngeal or even with a nasal, um, if you want every last shred of evidence that somebody is, has any remnants of virus in them or has any virus at all, then, then you know, maybe that's when you get into differences. But you know this is, a, this is an epidemiology podcast and mm-hmm. we're really thinking about public health. And the most important mm-hmm. thing about public health is to find people um, when they're still infectious
3: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and in that sense, when you're infectious, if you're truly able to transmit the virus to other people, almost any of these tests are gonna find you and these swab types are gonna do pretty well because you have so much virus. When right. you're actually transmitting, you have billions and billions of virus, if not trillions. And mm-hmm. so all of them, you know, all, and this is what I think has been a big point of confusion. We've spent almost the entirety since March talking about like the limits of detection of tests of what's best and what's not, you know, but really Mm -hmm. what, what like I can't figure out why so many people are obsessed with focusing on like the absolute limit of detection over here when all of the transmission Mm -hmm. happens over here and, you know, or at least the (laughs) vast bulk of it. And so I think it's really important to keep in mind that most people when they're transmitting, they still have so much virus that all of these modalities will do a pretty good job. And you Know when gotcha. we really get into the weeds, we're thinking more along the lines of clinical medicine more than other
0: things, mm-hmm.
2: right? So, I, so
0: I'm go ahead,
2: yeah. I mean, I think I think this gets into, and I know you want to move on to some other topics, but I Not this so gets important. into, uh, you know, w- what is it for, right? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. You know, like so, so the limit of detection becomes very important, you know, and after infections become very important, if I'm gonna like once again, we're going to do a major public health response. At, when we see cases, we're going to trace contacts. Like for contact tracing, you know, we want the most sensitive test because mm-hmm. it's really, because you're really not getting, I mean, the fact of the matter is most people who get tested on their own, not because they exposed, you're not getting much of their infectious period. By the time they get mm-hmm. tested and they get the test back, even like they've done their infecting for the most part. Mm-hmm. So really from a public health standpoint, you're, getting your all your benefit from a a test trace isolate type program from going after those people's contacts Mm -hmm. and um so that is and there you know if it's all about getting their contacts yeah you want a really really sensitive you know really sensitive test but we haven't really been doing a ton of that we've been doing some of that but we really haven't like gone all in on that like Mm -hmm. we could have but we decided we kind of missed
0: the window on that huh
2: we could again, but yeah. we'd ha- we'd have to do some other things to get the virus back under control. But we mm-hmm. could again. I-, I mean, if we if we spent 500 billion dollars on test, trace, isolate programs, I, I think it could have a, a meaningful impact. But
3: mm-hmm.
2: let's but you know let's be honest about like the investment we'd be. We're talking an army of people doing this you know, the ability to, and, th- and this gets to the pr- thing we haven't talked about uh, testing and being effective, you know, the ability for people to iso- who test positive to isolate outside of their homes, right. uh, support to make sure that they, you know, that lost, you know, that they don't like feel like they have to cheat the system or avoid the system because of lost income or inability to care for their families. Right. All, uh, all of those things, like if we, whatever testing strategy you have, if you want it to work you have to have the support structure around it to allow people to comply and make them want to comply
0: absolutely and
2: a- and so yeah I mean, that's not the original <laughs> point i was trying to make but <laughs> but i think really it's maybe a more point, important though. one than i was going to make
0: <laughs> right well it's a very important point and i think um You know, I I think we could talk a little bit about an alternate strategy, which I think is what you're getting at, which is that if if the point is that you just want to, you want to detect when people are actually infectious, that that actually the rapid test may be more useful and specifically kind of frequent rapid tests, right? I mean, this is what Michael has been a big proponent of is if you could do this cheaply and efficiently, and you could um, freely give people the rapid test, then it actually would be at a population level and overall, a more accurate indicator of when people are actually infectious and when they should actually isolate, right?
1: Yeah, that's, that's right. And I think that's where um, uh, we've done a lot of modeling on this and trying to understand, you know, what's the best way? Can you actually achieve something that looks like a vaccine effect at the population level through testing? And mm-hmm. so I like to break testing up. You have clinical testing. You have surveillance testing, which people have been really confused and they've just been kind of throwing the words around. Surveillance testing is what Justin was just talking about, you know, where you you're trying to find people to take public health action. You know, Mm -hmm. that's the reason that you're doing that testing, whether whether that public health action is just to allocate more resources to a place or to allocate contact tracers, whatever it might be. And then you have screening. You have two types of screening, which is entrance screening, like what the White House does and things like that. And then you have this whole other thing that I've been really pushing for because, because I think it is one of the few avenues we truly have that could work without a vaccine, uh, at least to get, to get outbreaks under control and without as much economic sort of shutdowns. And that's really frequent population scale screening where you, get, you make enough rapid diagnostic paper, like these rapid paper strip tests that everyone can use them, say, or, or half of a population, half a community can use them every four days or so. If you can get half of a community to use these tests every four days, then you're very likely to find a lot of people, like a lot of people, early in their exposure period and early in their transmissible period to actually drive the overall R, the effective R value below one. Mm-hmm. And so if we could do that, you know, and there's actually ways to do it. I, and, you know, if, if we wanted to, with 10 million tests a day printed in this country, if we can make a 10 million test a day, which isn't a huge number, because these are just small strips of paper with mm-hmm. some antibodies on them essentially, that would be enough to potentially achieve herd effects across the whole of the United States. Wow. And wow. you know, it, it sounds crazy, it sounds like magic, but well, it could, I'll, and I'll explain <laughs> it real quick. The way that it works. <laughs> Is, I've done a lot of these numbers. No, <laughs> I'm no, no, dubious. I'll explain, but... I'll explain it. So we have. Well, 10 one of our experts is
0: dubious. Everyone, let's hear.
1: But we have ten million tests a day. You you need half of a community to buy into doing the testing, right? Mm-hmm. So that means ten million tests a day get you twenty million coverage of twenty million people, and then you need people to test. Let's say once every five days. Mm-hmm. So then that 20 million covers 100 million people because you're only using them every 5 days for everyone. And then ah. you just have people pool in their households. You take three swabs, you take mom and kids mm-hmm. and you put those on one test. That 100 million now is testing the mm-hmm. equivalent of 300 are covering. Okay. Ah, right? oh, you if can if get we're test to the whole that, household okay. with okay. one test. Uh, okay. But that I mean, I really think that this could work. We, it's mm-hmm. not that hard to make. And let's say we just make 20 million tests a day and then we don't pool at all. You know, so what do we do when we test positive? Well, then if we test positive, I think we need with an antigen test, we need to have confirmatory tests immediately. And like none of this BS. But that's that, when you the use CDC, the PCR. Well, no, no, that's, oh, sorry. Oh, I, oh. I, I was going to go the other direction. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I think that that's, we can't, I think we have to be realistic about what people are willing to deal with. If this is at a population level, mm-hmm. we can't tell people, hey, use a five minute test, but hey, confirm with a four day con- confirmation test. Like mm, okay. it's just never going to work. So we have a really, we have a much better solution though. And that solution is you get orthogonal rapid tests. You get, and that means two rapid tests that are very likely to turn falsely positive for different reasons. So if you take a, a rapid test here, for every 30 rapid tests, maybe you get, maybe it's a government program, they give a household 30 rapid tests. In that same box of rapid tests that you get, there's five confirmation tests and those five. So then if you're turning positive on the screening test, then you immediately confirm. And if you're negative mm. over here at a population level, then we, had, we, we have to be reasonable. when we say, okay, you're negative. Or maybe you isolate for a day and you do all you do the testing again the next day or that night. And if it was a false positive, then you'd be very likely to like have them both be negative the next day or the same pattern. But the point is if you're really positive, then that second confirmatory test a day later would definitely turn positive because the virus you, is screaming upwards.
0: And then you quarantine for two weeks.
1: Well, to, for 10, 10 days in general. 10 and days, then you yeah, 10. and then you can test. And so the nice thing is the really Interesting part of this is it goes, it flies in the face of most of what we think about with surveillance and public health, in that one of the things that I'm trying, that I think is a benefit, even though it goes against my own interests as a public health data person, is people don't have to report these tests. Hmm. I think it would be great. We work with Google and Verizon and AT and T and make it, Mm -hmm. you know, as simple as a button Mm -hmm. to to be able to report a positive. Mm -hmm. But on the on the other hand. You, there's a lot of people who don't want to be part of a government program. They don't want to wear. Mm-hmm. They don't want to wear masks. They don't want to do any of this stuff. And so one of the beauties is you have these tests and people do it in the in the privacy of their own home. You know, hmm. you have it next to your toothbrush, and every morning you wake up, or every fifth morning you wake up and do it. And if you're positive, maybe that person is so aggressively not interested in this virus <laughs> that they actually won't even isolate. Uh-huh. But, why but why are they being well, well, right. So that's the thing. Yeah. So you probably people who choose to be in the 50% of the community mm. who is testing would probably be interested. Yeah. But let's say you can isolate. I do believe that even those people, they'd probably like, I have to believe most people are good. And if they know they're positive, maybe their behavior will change a bit. Maybe they will wear a mask or they they won't go and, and have beers with their friends that night. You mm-hmm. know, and, mm-hmm. and so I think that there's a lot of benefit actually of trying to hear what people's problems are. It's oftentimes the, feels like the antithesis of public health, but there's a lot of people who don't want to participate in government-sponsored activity, but, you know, maybe they would be okay with getting a test that just looks like a pregnancy test or a little piece of paper and doing that Mm -hmm. every fifth day, you know, they might be willing to do that.
0: Yeah. That's a really, really fascinating idea. And I, I, I wonder, you know, if you could prognosticate, I mean, do you envision a scenario where we do implement this you know, rapid testing at a, at a population level and we don't have a vaccine yet, do you envision a point where it would be safe to do things like dine indoors, maybe in a, even a fe- attend, I don't know, concerts? I mean, would it ever get to the point where you would, you'd say that that's safe to do without a vaccine if we could get a good enough handle on who actually is infectious?
1: Yeah, well, the well, the, the, big re- the, the, the most powerful part of this program that I'm envisioning with this 50% of people buy into it and use it every fifth day or whatever. You know, the most powerful part is that this isn't an entrance screening type of test.
3: Mm-hmm. I
1: want to get, you know, the whole point is you get the effect of R down below 1 and you actually get the outbreak to sub- to go away mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. in your community you no longer have a lot of cases. So, you know, mm-hmm. and then what's nice is that these can be used adaptively. So, during mm-hmm. like what I call peacetime, you you just have uh, other programs, you can be doing uh, wastewater uh, PCR testing, for example, mm-hmm. or any other mechanism. And then if cases start to pop up again in your community, maybe you get a text alert that says, hey, start using your test again. There's some cases in your town. And you know and everyone already has their box of tests, you know that maybe lasts them six months or a year, like sitting under their cupboard. and mm-hmm. you know then they start using it again. Start and then it. if you get yeah. cases to get very, very low again, then, you know, we have to, I, I think we have to be thinking about this as a marathon. I can envision mm-hmm. that if we can get outbreaks under control and get contact tracing and things like that to actually work,
3: mm-hmm. then,
1: you know, this can be a sort of a short-term stopgap to get outbreaks suppressed mm-hmm. enough so that we can get a handle on them. So then, you know, maybe we can get cases low enough across the country so that you're not worried if the person next to you at dinner has COVID. Like, cause nobody yeah. in your town has had COVID in three months. And the mm-hmm. and the probability is just so low. Then the nice thing is, if cases do start to emerge again, you can reimplement it the can testing re-implement strategy the test.
0: again. Very interesting idea that would require um, a sea change in the way we approach things. But you know, maybe that's where we need to get to.
1: I'm, I'm interested in what stress. Justin has to yeah. say.
2: Yeah, I I think the idea makes sense as part of the toolbox. To mm-hmm. to be clear, right? Like I'm not. I mean, it it is a creative idea. I think we need creative ideas. I have a, you know, like I have some dubiousness that that it would actually work. Because here we're requiring for a lot of people to voluntarily do what we want. But, you know, why the heck not try? We need Mm -hmm. to try something different. And we haven't, you know, we're not really trying on the tools we have. Mm -hmm. So... You right, know, was I, say. I'm all for I'm all for trying in this. I do think though, it needs to be paired like any strategy with this needs to be paired with policy to make it easy for people to comply and, and um and Absolutely. be part of it. Right, if I, for instance, have my positive you know have my positive test and like I don't know text a picture of it to my you know, work, they should be required to like, not fire me because I didn't Absolutely. come in. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I should have some government, you know, potential government uh, support to, to allow me to do my help me in the time of isolation period, if I'm, you know, financially disadvantaged, it's like, I don't right. need it. But, you know, people do. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, and, you know, yeah, and there would be abuse of that. But, you know, know, if if it, like, gets rid of, like, you know, right now, if we're chasing after Europe as fast as we can, we're going to be all stuck in our homes again in January.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And, like, so I I, I think it is good to think out of the box. I support it, but I think any strategy uh, like that, like, I think the whole failure of the pandemic is a failure of intentionality. Mm -hmm. in the sense that we have not said at any point, this is what we're trying to do. Like, this is what our goal is. This is how we're going to get there. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And, you know, this is how we're going to get there. And we're going to stick with this, free thick, and fin, to to get there. I mean, we'll be adaptive. Like, we're not going to be stupid, but like, we'll be adaptive. But we have a goal and we have a place we're trying to get. You know, Michael has laid out a vision I, I don't think I'm his own, as own as much a believer of the vision of his vision as he is. It's not a it's not a completely crazy vision. Vision, and I think if we can committed... can, I,
1: can I ask you can I ask you real quick? I think this is good to have this on this podcast. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm really, yeah, this is on I'm record. Really curious, um, like if we're trying to use testing and tracing and isolating uh, at all. How, as a tool to, to get this virus under control, like, how does this differ in that sense? Um, like, why would anyone believe in that uh, as a tool I, forward, I was going to ask the but, same question. Like, uh, when I really pose this to people, I say, wouldn't you want to know, like, wouldn't you like to have tests at your house that you can do once a week or once every four days with you and your kids? Uh, like you know, we're so close to an effect of, our, like we're of, a, of one, you know, it doesn't take that much reduction to really start getting outbreaks to not grow and to potentially go down. So I'm trying to understand uh, on the record, you know, why <laughs> other experts that I admire, um, you know, as much as I admire you, which for anyone who doesn't know, I admire Justin very much um, as a scientist and a person. And so I'm really trying to better understand what the hesitation is? Uh, right.
2: Well, I was actually about to get to the things that could do it. Right. Like I think it is. Right. Like because I think I'm dubious. Like it is. It is a core of an idea. It is the core idea that we could hang our hats on and go sort of all in. I I think it's it's one of any number of testing driven ideas. You oh know? yeah. Like a, a, like test right that that we could hang our hats on. But to do it, I think we would need to, you know, there's not just the investment. The test, I think, as I said, I think there's the investment of all of the things around it to support okay. it, and the commitment of the community to um, to buy it. Yeah. Right? But I that's going to be the just, same with every. That's strategy. the same, but that's what I going to say. The same, the same with Every right strategy, right? Like, I guess I'm. You know, so, right, so I look at, you know, I look at um, mask use, for instance, Mm -hmm. like, you know, frankly, I know there's people out there who very much disagree with me on this. But frankly, I can think of few things in the infection control arsenal that are less obtrusive to people's life than wearing a mask whenever you're around and people (laughs) not just will people still not do it people will actively oppose this Mm -hmm. i can see reasons why what michael's proposing that you know like i can see both reasons why he will you know why it might be less you know opposed, opposed, but I can also could see some people just because it's a, you know, it's a medical thing, you know, it's more technological, what people might be more opposed to. So I, um,
1: but it's, uh, but it's so, but it's, you know, the, the, I completely agree by the way, but I I would say, you know, a test that takes you five minutes once every five days is really, um, you know, the, I think that the masks, masks have become absolutely, there's no doubt about it, they become political statements. Social mm-hmm. distancing has become a political mm-hmm. statement. This,
3: sure.
1: I think for those people, I mean, it might not work. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> for those people who don't want to participate at all, they might not. But I think even within the most ardent anti-mask wearing communities, you might find 30 or 40 or 50% of people who would say, you know what? I'll take a test for me and my yeah. family. You know, mm-hmm. before I go to my grandma's house, especially a lot of these right. communities that are really anti-mask,
3: mm-hmm. they are,
1: um, they're, you know, that a lot of them are like Midwest uh, and communities that you know have a lot of family that they still, you know, they, there's a lot of. It's just a different. It's a different um, community structure, and a lot of people don't want to get their friends sick at church and their grandma sick and things like that. And and I could see that yeah. being alone being something that. It's not a mask. Right. It's not something you're wearing all day, but it's something that you know makes you feel like you're at least doing the smallest little thing before you go to grandma's house, or
2: something. Mm. right? And and I think right. And I think those are things going on. I, I can see negative sides of people like essentially using it as a you know a, a license as, a, party, a license party, <laughs> right? I <A>, agree. <laughs> already, that. already doing
0: that, but that's that's already the case. It. I guess that's my so but that's
2: actually the, the, the taste, but it but it but it could be. Other people, but I say th- I think to to make it not, you build the structures around it, right? Like so yeah, it Mike's- is a it is a pillar you could build around.
0: But I, I guess my I question haven't is:
2: seen the like? I would like to see the pol the full work on the full policy thing because in some ways I think it is that because there are a number of distance different test driven or even symptom driven frankly strategies mm-hmm. you could drop into that support system so if this mm-hmm. one ends up not working out as well right um, so i it's not that i think the i you know it's it's like a, it's it's like i've said numerous times in numerous forms i'm sure i said it here right like we don't <laughs> knock this thing like with like one dramatic wand waving solution. Right. even vaccine is probably not that we chip at right. it here and there from a number of different angles yeah so and i can and i'm all for there are things that can be the banner the banner child mm-hmm. to build around but we have to build around in my heard, uh... view part part of the problem so far is we've looked at the ban- we said, that's the banner child. That's all we've, that's, what's going to save us. And then we've never started building.
0: Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, I heard a uh, Nicholas Christakis on um, NPR. he made a good analogy that I like. I'm stealing it for this podcast, which is um, you know, you use the Swiss cheese analogy. So each, each prevention measure is, is one layer of Swiss cheese. And if you put enough layers of Swiss cheese on each other, all of a sudden you're going to have a wall that air can't go through. Right. Cause assuming the holes are randomly distributed, et cetera. Eventually all the holes are going to be blocked, right? And it may only take three pieces of cheese, but any one piece of cheese is not going to keep uh, air from flowing, right? Um, so I thought that was a good analogy. And, and it may not, it may not be that we need to find the one perfect strategy. We just need to have three or four of them going at the same time in you know, synergistically working with each other, mask being a perfect example. Mask isn't going to stop all the um, you know, risk of infection, but if you use mass as well as testing, as well as, you know, the free testing as Michael's talking about, um, you, may, you may get somewhere, right? And
1: um, I would say, I think um, th- there's one other piece that I think, and it really goes along with what Justin's saying um, and what, what you're referencing, which is, you know, this, this has been driven, almost this entire pandemic has been driven by epidemiologists, scientists, economists, there's a whole group of people who exist that we should be enlisting really early on that we haven't. And frankly, that's, that's marketing teams. Mm. Like we have, there's like billion dollar industries
3: mm-hmm. around
1: getting, people's, to, to getting people things. to change their behaviors. <laughs> right. you know, And I've been really advocating, I've said this to the CDC and I've said this to Congress and senators and stuff. Like there's no reason why we're not enlisting Coca-Cola's best marketing team and and apples and whoever it is Mm -hmm. to try to help send messages you know we're just focused on i just saw this really terrible ad the other day um and and it was like (laughs) to try to get people to social distance appropriately and and like we have to get out of this old version of like what public health ads look like like these old ads that said like don't smoke and don't Mm -hmm. drink and things like that like Mm -hmm. no there's there's so many other ways to get people to change their behavior and change their mind and and you know we should be blasting these things like subconsciously there's so there's a whole art and science that I don't know but I know that there are people who do this in the world you know and why we are not trying to enlist that type of activity as a public health measure you know I'm not saying that we need propaganda but I'm saying mm-hmm. we should really be using people who know how to speak to people's hearts and minds in a way that mm-hmm. frankly I don't do and you know most scientists and most CDC people don't do and and uh, but i I think that's a
0: statement that holds for all of public health and epidemiology across the board but this pandemic really making it the case yeah yeah.
2: i mean i think it lays back like i think part of the core to the problem i mean you know i i agree i agree with michael like you know we're not necessarily engaging you know the absolute optimal people and persuading others um in this you know in this case but I would also say that, um, you know, we have been unable to speak with one voice mm-hmm. in this country. Right. And large, you know, some of that we could lay at the feet of the current political situation. situation. And that's been talked about to death. I, I don't have any interest <laughs> in going there. But, the, but part of that, you know, we have to, I think we have to accept that the way we've structured public health in our Country where we've devolved everything to the very local level um, and devolved almost complete control to the very local level, usually sub state, um, is the, you know, is sort of the weaknesses of that approach. And I'm not saying it doesn't have any strengths, but the weaknesses of that approach are, have been laid bare by the pandemic, in my view. That's and that's I think uh, hopefully we can get the like national com. We can have a reason national conversation after this, and address that. You know, the nineteen nineteen or sorry nineteen eighteen pandemic, influenza pandemic, created public health in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, as we know it. Um, I mean, it was built over years after that, but it laid the seeds. You know, we should use this pandemic to find a way to when things like this happen speak as one voice because i think if we're not speaking as one one voice all the marketing in the world is not going to help us
0: that's yeah. a good point and yeah. and like you said we need to have a goal that we're you know we don't we don't know what the goal is that we're trying to get to or how to get yeah. there and it's right
1: yeah. and that's um, well, you know that's something that we actually touched on like way back in the very maybe in like yeah. march or april when we first did one of these um, we did You know, one of the things that and it was also about testing that I was saying it anyway, and I said, you know, it touches on the same thing that One of the reasons some of the East Asian countries and did so well is they were able to allocate resources nationally. They were Mm -hmm. able to speak as one voice and bring in know, use economies of scale and and I remember saying all the way back then and we were having this discussion that We were never really going to be able to get testing as much as we needed using like PCR because it was a fragmented society. You know, every test mm-hmm. had to be done, re- reinvent the wheel and, and every state was on its own. And, um, and it really, it's been like such a common theme. I completely agree with Justin that this yeah. has been the common theme as just fractured right. decision-making, fractured priorities and ways to go about it, which doesn't yeah. work in a pandemic that doesn't care about borders.
0: Exactly. Well, that's a a great point. Um, And, you know, we're going to have to wrap up soon. I feel like we could wax poetic about this point uh, forever. But, um, and since we're nearing the end, you know, I'm I'm not going to have a lot of time to touch on this. So maybe we will have to do another episode on this soon. But, you know, we keep talking about these strategies until we get the vaccine, right? (laughs) And it's like, what are we going to do? We got to do something until we get the vaccine. But, you know, Um, I think naively, I could ask, you know, where are we at with the vaccine? But I I, I think we know, or at least what experts are saying is that we we shouldn't believe that this vaccine is going to come along and be this silver bullet, right? There's going to be a vaccine and it might not be 100% effective and then a better vaccine will come along, you know, so then it raises the question, how do we know, when it's actually safe to get a vaccine? You know, like if, if a vaccine becomes available, who do we trust? How do we know when this is, I think a lot of people are asking the question, how do we know when to get a vaccine? First oh, of all, when do you think yeah. a vaccine will be available? And, you know, would you take it on that first one that's available?
1: I think that, um, I, I, I don't think a va- vaccine's really gonna be widely available to, to the average Joe at mm-hmm. least until the middle of the year. Um,
3: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, these are vaccines that are gonna have to be produced for the entire world, not just the US, not just for one state or anything. And so, right. um, and then from a safety perspective, I do actually think, you know, there's been a lot of this of questioning in the media, but at the end of the day, these are going to tens of thousands of people for each vaccine in phase three. And they appear to be pretty safe so far. I mean, th- there was a, a couple small pauses Uh, And those were good, you know, it meant that Mm -hmm. the due diligence was being done. And I don't know if if my, if at this point, I would say we we don't know enough about efficacy, but from a safety perspective, Mm -hmm. I mean, the chances are, it's going to be safe for the vast, vast majority of people, Mm -hmm. you know, but with any vaccine, there's always going to be, you're creating an inflammatory response by definition. And if you Mm -hmm. don't create the inflammatory response, the vaccine didn't work. And so, and Problem there is that anytime you create a robust inflammatory response and stimulate an immune response like a like a vaccine can do, you run a risk of of ran rare adverse effects. And uh how rare they are is what is still what we're gonna have to wait to see. Is it gonna be one in a hundred thousand, mm-hmm. one in fifty thousand, or one in a million? You know, and we're just not sure. Yeah.
2: And I mean, I I think like some of You know right like we're talking about a risk balance here and a lot of what we're talking about is you know like the risk from the virus and the risk from the vaccine and you know the vaccine trials like necessarily are only going to tell us about short-term efficacy and short-term risks and for most you know for a number of these vaccines there's no reason to believe there would be any long-term risks but you know there are some new technologies on the table and the like but i but i think you know it, it, like funnily like you know i would say you know if the vaccine was approved tomorrow and like you know i you know i i glanced at you know didn't see anything about the process that i was like oh my god that's a red flag
3: mm-hmm.
2: i would probably you know be in line to yeah, take it in line
3: right
0: yeah
2: right you know but if that same vaccine was approved 3 years from now Mm -hmm. after maybe the you know the virus has run its course in a lot of the world and the risk is a lot lot lower you know i might actually you know the risk the the risk equation has changed and and Mm -hmm. what we would maybe be asking in terms of safety profile information would be different you know um so we we you know like It is, we are confronting a crisis now, and this disease is deadly. It kills, you know, it tends to kill older people, but it kills like probably over one in 200 people who get it in the United States, you know, which is um, quite deadly. And so, you know, we will see, you know, so I think it, you know, the vaccine is a really important tool. I would, you know, and, I am hoping that we have something coming out of these trials that is, you know, that is efficacious and that the manufacturing goes as well as we hope and we don't see any, you know, and also I'd also stress like by the time the general public gets access we will probably also have a better idea of any adverse side effects because all the healthcare workers and all the hot, you know right. people who are going to get it. Those that's right. going to be millions
0: of people. Millions of people but before, before
2: the rest of- yeah, before the average Joe gets it. Millions of gotcha. people are going to have had the vaccine. So gotcha. any sh- any severe short term side effects are awesome. likely going to be evident by then. But oh. you know, but also like you know, I would you know, I think there's reason to be hopeful. More money, more new technology. As you know, more like thought about being untable for manufacturing has been put into than ever before. Mm-hmm. But we've never had a va- vaccine for coronavirus. Mm. A lot of the, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the technologies being used have never been used to successfully make a vaccine in humans. Uh, you know, or widely deployed vaccine in humans at this point. So. You know well, fingers crossed fingers we'll crossed
0: see. okay well like i said i think uh this might uh, warrant a whole uh, episode in and of itself maybe for the near future but i think this is a good point to wrap up the conversation and um i want to thank thank michael for once again joining us and your expertise is just invaluable and so thank you guys so much uh thank you to sue bevan for producing the show As always, I'll make a plug for the Society for Epidemiologic Research, especially as our virtual conference is coming up December 16th through 18th. We have two awesome keynote speakers lined up that I'm excited to see, Ibram Kendi and Brian Nosek. And of course, there will be symposia talks and virtual posters on the state of the science in epidemiology. If you're an epidemiologist, SER membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, along with access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. And you can find out how to become a member and how to register for the conference at epiresearch.org. We appreciate you listening. We'll be back with another episode soon.